Hello and welcome to The 40 Minute Mentor with me, your host, James Mitra. Here at JBM, we think one of the best things you can do for your career is to find a great mentor who you can learn from and be inspired by. So for those of you who are looking for this mentorship, we launched this podcast. In each episode, we'll be sharing career stories, advice and mentorship from some of the most inspiring people we know. And we hope that you can apply some of these learnings to your life and career. I'm always keen to get feedback, so if you have any thoughts once you've listened to this interview, just drop me a line at james at jbmc.co.uk. Today's guest is the brilliant and very entertaining Ruth Penfold, who is the People VP at Onfido. Onfido uses machine learning to help companies verify the identity of their users online. Founded in 2012, the business has gone from strength to strength and earlier this year raised $50 million in a Series C round led by SoftBank Investments and Salesforce Ventures. Ruth is a phenomenal leader in the people and talent space and as People VP and part of the executive team at Onfido, she's responsible for all aspects of their people strategy, helping their ever-growing team to manage the people and recruitment challenges that come with a rapidly scaling tech business. As Ruth says, her role is to create the right environment for the people of tomorrow, whilst retaining the people for today. Prior to joining Onfido, Ruth was the head of talent acquisition at Shazam, responsible for managing their global recruitment as they went from startup to scale up to a household name. In this conversation, we go into detail on Ruth's journey with both Shazam and Onfido and discuss her experience of helping to scale two disruptive tech firms how she is focused on creating cultures that enable individuals to bring their true self to work, and how she has tackled the challenges that come with scale-up life. In addition to her high-flying tech career, Ruth is also a practicing yoga instructor and writes a regular blog. Her approach to balancing the different aspects of her life and ensuring she makes time for things she really enjoys is really unique, and Ruth shares some great advice on how she does this in today's show. So if you're looking to understand how to grow your tech business, explore ways to make your firm more inclusive, or if you're just looking for some inspirational mentorship from one of the most engaging and honest leaders that I've met, this is a must listen. So with all of that said, please enjoy my conversation with Ruth Penfold. Ruth, welcome to the 40 Minute Mentor. Thank Thank you very much for your time. I thought we could kick this off with a 30 second overview of your CV, if you don't mind. Okay, well, I will try to self monitor what 30 seconds is. So I started out working as a headhunter. I fell into recruitment like many, many, many people do. Found myself doing that for about 13 years, working in small owner managed and owner led recruitment businesses. Bit of personal change, then catapulted me out into the world in a new way. Met lots of exciting people. One of those people was at Shazam. Went in-house with Shazam. Led talent at Shazam for five years. Then left Shazam a year ago exactly to take on VP people role with Onfido, who are an identity verification business. Awesome. Thank you very Ish. much. 30 that seconds? Basically 30 Ish. seconds. Very good. Um, <laughs> So obviously you started your career as a headhunter, which is what I do. What made you take that decision to go in-house to Shazam? I know you met someone, so it'd be good to understand a bit more about the thinking behind that. 
I have a huge amount of love and respect for the work and career that I had before I came in-house, so to speak. It certainly wasn't a holy grail for me. It wasn't a life is going to get better when I go in-house. What I'd been doing, though, was making decisions in my professional life based on what I was trying to maintain in my personal life, which wasn't the correct way of doing things. So I'd fallen into recruitment. My earnings had hit a certain level, and I was trying to sustain that over a period of time. But what I was doing was kind of living Groundhog Day. And that's the thing that I found unsatisfying. So in terms of me kind of moving into Shazam, I did that rather than having a goal of going in-house. I just sort of naturally started to get to know lots of different people and just find people in the world who were doing jobs that I found interesting. Now, one of the beautiful things about being a headhunter is you're doing that the whole time anyway. And you learn so much about different professions and different people. So I guess I became a little more targeted around businesses that I was interested in and, and learning more about them. But the business wasn't Shazam at the time. It just so happened that one of the people that I managed to connect to and interact with found himself at Shazam and reached out to me and said, hey, Penfold, I am somewhere that I think is a perfect culture fit for you. Would you come and talk to us? And at the time, I was at, I had just left recruit, agency side recruitment and I was doing a contract as an HR person for a, for a rail engineering business that were a former client of mine. Okay. Um, and I was like, okay, let's do it. So, so it was kind of by accident rather than by design, but obviously phenomenally exciting business to do it with consumer tech and a real kind of change in energy, um, which was the thing that I was really mm. craving. And no disrespect to the rail industry, but I don't, it, can, it can get more different than uh, no. a startup like Shazam, which went, I guess has gone on to do some incredible things. Yeah, it was a bit different. So what for you were the biggest benefits and challenges to making that transition? So I think that the biggest benefits would be the learnings, the constant learning. I got to see the business and take the business through some really phenomenal stages of of development of an organization. So when I arrived, we just had a ton of funding. Cost really wasn't a thing. It was just higher, higher, higher and do it fast. And I was able to kind of bring in a, a direct sourcing model and create a lot of process and structure that helped create success. So it was learning all the time. Then we were focused on achieving profitability which meant a total change in the kind of executive team and lots of other business change. And then we were getting the business ready for acquisition with Apple. And the point when I left was, you know, we would we just signed that deal, um, which is now completed and all happened and all the rest of it. So, so I think the learning was phenomenal. The biggest challenge was actually within myself, which is a, a much well-used term these days, but I don't think we quite had a name for it then, which was imposter syndrome, or maybe we did, but I didn't, we didn't know it. Like many people who work in recruitment, I had a bit of an unhealthy dialogue with myself around my professional career. Recruiters don't have a very good reputation, James. I'm sure you know this too. (laughs) That's why I set JVM up, to be a bit different. (laughs) And so you kind of always felt like you you are, and hopefully you don't anymore, but I know in my 20s, I felt like I was always kind of starting on a back foot in a conversation and kind of pitching my professional level of credibility slightly beneath other people's, which is completely unfounded and ridiculous now I see. So when I got offered the Shazam role, I kind of didn't feel like I deserved it. 
I kind of felt like other people were going to find out that I was actually this charlatan who didn't have a clue what she was doing. When actually, in reality, the startups that startup recruitment businesses that I had built my career in was the very experience that set me up for success Mm -hmm. in a business like Shazam, because I had a high degree of positive energy. I was incredibly resilient, (laughs) incredibly solutions focused, which meant that I was really able to find a path where people hadn't been able to find it before. And I was actually the first person that they hired permanently at Shazam in that role. And within six months, I was leading the UK team. And within nine months, I was leading the, the global talent acquisition piece. So, you know, I was very well set up to take that role on, but the little evil voices within my <laughs> the gremlins side, within. Yeah, the gremlins within were telling me otherwise. Interesting. And I think that's, that is so true. It reminds me, before I set JBM up and I was at a large recruitment consultancy, you'd go to nights out or you'd be at dinner parties and people would just roll their eyes when you say what you did for a living. Absolutely. And I, I was a bit embarrassed at times and, um, and I left recruitment for a year. And then it was only when I realized actually... You know, why complain about the problem? Why don't you do something about it? And, yeah. and that was, I guess, very much the genesis of JBM, trying to prove that not all recruiters were, were sharky and dishonest yeah. and, and there was a different way to do the job. So I totally resonate with that. I think there's a lot of people and quite possibly people that listen to this that will suffer from imposter syndrome. So those looking to make that transition from a more advisory role, be it consulting or recruitment in-house, What are the things you'd get them to think about in order to make that transition successful? I think, and you'll hear this advice from me in many, many, many scenarios, it's really believe in yourself, right? It's get clear about who you are, what you stand for, what matters the most to you, and believe that you have the ability to come in. So don't do what I did (laughs) or or do what I did, but do it with self-belief and know that the experience that you have has tremendous value because you have a phenomenal vantage point of industry and business. You have had a snapshot into way more organizations than other people have and how they operate and how they run and what makes things work well and what doesn't. And, um, you know, I think that you really need to kind of get your inner dialogue right and make sure that you have the self-belief to do it because you can do whatever you want to do. That's it. (laughs) No, it's great advice. So how does working in tech differ from working in the more traditional industries that you used to recruit for? So I think tech as an industry is phenomenal in a million ways. What is one of the most exciting things is the way that technology businesses are changing the face of organizations and how they operate. In tech businesses, legitimately, in most cases, you get to come to work as yourself and that is celebrated. So from my perspective, technology businesses have created space that has given the opportunity for the rise of the individual, which is something that I've blogged about. You know, getting to bring your most authentic, true self to work is really the place where you will become the absolute best that you can be and that business will gain from it. And why this is changing the world of work in general is because people are looking to technology businesses as like, okay, so you're doing the cool stuff. How do we do that too? And some of the things that technology businesses are getting right, and we're not perfect, right? But some some of the things that we're getting right are around that stuff. 
and because the rest of industry is, uh, you know, every every other business has an innovation lab or a tech team that they're trying to grow, and they're trying to create this this energy of creation. You create energy of creation by allowing people to be themselves, and I think that's one of the most exciting ways of doing yeah. things. The other thing is around, you know, sort of future proofing your organization. So, you know, being aware that we're all living longer. We will all have any number of careers within yeah. our lives and should, and that should be celebrated. And businesses like technology businesses, you'll see people pivot and move into different areas and different roles in a way that they maybe haven't done in biz in more traditional businesses. And um, we do that for very, I mean, it's a calculated reason, you know, we need to stay at, we want to retain great people and yeah. stay ahead. And we do that with people in the same way that we do with our product, which is constantly iterating and constantly exploring how we can support people to keep growing and be better. And that's really important. So it's kind of the future proofing of the world of work, I would say. No, it's really interesting. And I think for us, the, the clients that we work with that have that culture of allowing individuals to bring their whole selves to work seem to be the most popular by by a long shot. Yeah. Um, are there specific things when it comes to hiring and talent that do you think tech does particularly well that maybe those more traditional industries could learn from? Particular things around hiring and talent. Do you know what? I think more than anything, it's the appetite to experiment. Okay. Right? Yeah. It's the appetite to iterate. So it's being able to say, hey, we didn't get that right. Let's find a better way. In fact, one of the one of the core values for Onfido is find a better way. And so we're constantly encouraging and inviting our people to find new ways of doing things. And then obviously there is, you could get embroiled in the idea of using technology to remove bias and, and all the rest of it. My belief around that though is that until we get better at tackling human bias, the machines will continue to be biased yeah. anyway. Yeah, so I, I think, you know, you can't fix those challenges. The challenges that are created by humans, you have to fix within yeah. humans to a degree. Yeah, fair enough. It's quite topical as, as diversity is, is very important and yeah. something that is talked about a lot when it comes to fintech and tech. As a female leader in, in this space, what's your view on how the industry is doing at the moment in terms of the diversity and inclusion agenda? I would say that there is a lot of good intention, but there is so much work to be done. And I don't think anybody can wholeheartedly say, oh my goodness, we're nailing this, right? The trouble is, is that people tend to focus on the diversity issue when actually the first thing that you need to tackle is the inclusivity issue. So until you create an environment where people feel like they can bring their whole self to work and be straightforward and you know, that they feel like they are 100% included in the conversation, you're never going to be able to create real diversity because you're not going to hear that person's voice. And, you know, I know I've talked about tech allowing people to come to work as themselves, but when it comes to inclusivity, we all have work to do within ourselves around how we make sure that we create those environments for people. When I talk about inclusivity, I'm not just talking about the obvious kinds of diversity that you, we can see with our eyes. It's also the diversity you can't see. It's the extrovert versus the introvert. You know, how do you make sure that your meetings are inclusive so that everybody in your team 
gets to tell you what they really feel about something because the quietest voices can sometimes be the ones with the most interesting reflection that that you haven't perhaps given space for. So I think that diversity, when companies focus on just that, it can be very surface and that's where it can become a box ticking exercise. If you really want to have a diverse team, which will put you at a competitive advantage, it has been proven, you need to make sure that when you, if you're lucky enough to have diverse voices in the room, that you can hear them. Definitely. That's that's really interesting. And I know Onfido has a very diverse business, um, which you've played a key role in, in helping to build over the last year. So I, I wanted to come on to that building of a team piece. High-performing teams, you've been around at both Shazam and Onfido. What for you are the kind of key elements that enabled you to build these teams rapidly while also maintaining that quality in terms of the individual, but also alignment to the culture as as it's growing at a real pace? Well, I mean, if we look at Shazam as a case study for that, because I mean, that really was sort of coming in and, and making sense of something. I inherited a team that were operating very much in silos. So great individual contributing recruiters, but nothing coming together to make the whole thing dance and sing, right? So it has to come back to great process. Great hiring has to come back to great process and getting the basics right as fast as possible. So, you know, and that's from in the way that you're kind of engaging with the business around the way that you're going to deliver that hiring. And that means creating a recruiting organization, not just a recruitment team, And so, or a talent acquisition team, depending on what we're calling it. So recruitment is everybody's job. And the sooner that you can get out there with your, with your, what do we call it? A milk box or whatever. Um, Soapbox. Soapbox. As soon as you can get your car out, I think I was thinking of your lemonade stand out as well at the same time within the organization, because you know, recruitment is a marketing platform and every person within that organization can be and should be an advocate for that business. And if you are able to harness that energy from your people, you will have however many, you know, advertisements for your business walking around and interacting with and engaging with the world. So taking recruitment beyond the talent or recruitment team and making it everybody's job is really important too. And then, and by that, you know, helping them to learn how to how to hire, empowering people to make decisions, yeah. to rise above politics within organizations, to make the right choices for their team. And, you know, not making a big mistake businesses make is when they make the sort of people teams, if you like, the kind of, you know, culture champions when actually the organization is full of phenomenal people who are creating a phenomenal culture. All of those people have a view, and rightly so, around what that culture is and how we retain it. But I say that with to get culture right within organizations, you have to be prepared for it to evolve. If you get too dogmatic about, hey, this is who we are, this is how we do things, then you're actually not operating as an agile business at all. You need to be prepared for the new humans that are coming in and bringing in their amazing brains, their amazing energy, their amazing ideas to come in and, you know, add something to your culture and and create something even better. And, And I think the best businesses and the ones that are able to preserve a sense of 
togetherness and awesomeness inside are the ones that embrace the change as much as they, you know, set a high bar for those that are coming in. So many interesting things in there. I particularly like the idea of empowering individuals almost to feel like they, they are building the business together and they're fully involved in the process. I think that that's something that we hear. You can. It's so obvious to see when someone loves the company they work for. And that's incredibly attractive to candidates, isn't it? And it makes right. you want to learn more and it makes you want to be involved. Again, clients that we know and love are always the ones that empower their people to do exactly that. Yeah. Um, so that's 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 really interesting. You you alluded to it there around companies also needing to accept to change. Yes. Which we've seen some great firms struggle with that and adapt. So I, I'm interested in your thoughts around managing expectations of people that are coming into the business because I guess a team at the first 10 of a business might not necessarily be sort of in the same place sort of two years down the line when it's maybe 300. How do you manage the potential tensions that come with people that are maybe in the earlier stage of the firm who've lived through that cycle and then new talents coming in and the culture's obviously changing? How do you manage that from a people and talent perspective? Yeah, good question. I think for me, if you work with me, you'll learn that I talk about love a lot. Because love is the foundation of everything, right? Every interaction we have in our lives, we are in relationship with others, right? And love has to be at the heart. So for the businesses that I work with, it's making love a thing, right? It's embracing the fact that, that we, there is love that is shared between us within organizations and encouraging for the new people coming in who you may be bringing in as a subject matter expert you may be bringing them in to change stuff and to help make the organization better, but you invite them to do that from a loving place. So I often use the phrase conduct a loving audit, which doesn't mean that you're coming in and you're tearing it up mm-hmm. and create, you know, it means that you're coming in and you're looking at what already exists and what has been built and you're looking at how we then improve. So that that you're then able to kind of shore up the team that already exists but then also add the amazing influence of and ideas of whatever it is that you're bringing experience-wise to the table as well. And then for the old people who have been there from the beginning, it's inviting that openness within them too. All relationships are built in the same way. And that is, you know, through consistency, through respect, through the commitment that you make to one another And that doesn't matter whether that's a commitment that I'm making to you for six months of a contract when we're working together or for this five minutes while I'm going to buy a hot drink from you over the counter. And trust is everything and we have to trust one another. So for organizations to support people in establishing trust together, you know, creating a a loving energy of sharing and mutual growth. So what's really beautiful, so I sit on the executive team here at Onfido. There are nine of us on that team. Most of us have quite a lot of experience. Our founders are in their mid-20s. But there is never any question over us meeting as total peers. And that's because they have the wisdom of what it's taken for the six years since they started creating this business to get here. They know more about this business than we will ever know. And so their wisdom is met by our wisdom in terms of years of experience or different organizations or different stages of organization that we're bringing. And we meet as peers and we form that connection. And and so that's a very kind of real, for me, example of 
how those two things can come together and then we can create an awesome team love it love it i guess we're focusing now on some of the positives which is great yeah Uh, what are the challenges though so what are the challenges that you and the team have had to overcome as you've scaled both shazam and onfido and what are the road bumps that perhaps anyone that listening to this who's working in a scale-up environment what are the things they need to think about as they go through that process yeah well i think getting the right leadership is paramount it's the key to everything but you will make mistakes and it is okay but it's important that you remedy those mistakes when you make them right so it's kind of being humble enough so you know, knowing that you're going to make mistakes and being humble enough to say, do you know what? I need to unpick this and I need to go. We need to start over. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I think getting the right leadership and making sure that that leadership is supercharged and understands how to build relationships with people, how to have difficult conversations, how to give and receive feedback and really create the right energy in the organization is huge. And then the other thing that I would say is sort of keeping the faith is important. I have such respect for founders of businesses like like Onfido, but there are many others like us because you have to have this incredible vision and energy that means that you're doing crazy stuff that most of us wouldn't dream of doing because you're building this thing. And as you're scaling a business, you know, we want to get on board and come with you on your journey. But very few of us are brave enough to go, do you know what? I've got this idea. Come with me. And when they say to actually scale a business as you're, you know, and rapidly scale a business means that you have to be comfortable in living slightly beyond your means because you're kind of hiring ahead of where your business is slightly, which is incredibly brave. And, you know, you have to kind of, I guess, balance the vision of the founders with leaders who might be a bit more, I don't want to say that we're risk adverse, but, you know, hey, uh, but but so that you end up meeting in the middle in a place of sustainable growth, right? But there's always a really interesting energy in a startup where founders are still involved. They weren't really at Shazam, but on Fido, you know, they are very much at the very heart of the organization. That's really interesting. And clearly coming from the top of the business, I guess you always want to be inspired by your leaders. And it sounds like here, and I I know from what I've read and seen that the the leadership here that you're a part of is is setting a fantastic bar and a tone for the whole of the business to follow. We Um, try to, but I have to say, we're not perfect either, right? And I think one of the most important things is that, you know, as a group, we sit together and we provide feedback to one another, <laughs> yeah, yeah. but that we we are the people who are prepared to say, hey, we didn't get that right. And hey, guys, we didn't get that right. And yeah. and we're still improving, getting better at saying, <laughs> hey, guys, we didn't get that right. But that's what people want. They want real, honest, Absolutely. open leadership. And especially when they're standing on milk boxes or soap boxes in Hyde Park <laughs> or with or wherever the lemonade it is. stand <laughs> um, yeah no I, I think it sounds no, it sounds great okay so just coming on to you a little bit and, and your style I've seen on LinkedIn I know you blog a lot and I've seen you write I think on LinkedIn watching people become the best versions of themselves rocks my world yeah so I, I'm interested in that um, what do you feel are the common challenges uh, that people need to overcome to become the best version of themselves Um, what's your advice to anyone listening that wants to do that? So I say this having learned it, right? 
I speak from a place of experience and I'm not saying I'm quite the best version of myself, but I'm definitely the best version of her today. And that's my focus every day. The most common challenges for people realizing the best versions of themselves is themselves. Yeah. You need to learn how to get the hell out of your own way. So your connection to yourself is everything. And there can never be too much self-study or self-inquiry as far as I'm concerned. I began a journey towards myself in 2008. And that journey has been continuing ever since and will continue to unfold. Like many people, I stepped away from my real self when I was a child and tried to make myself into what I thought, not even what the world wanted me to be, what I thought the world wanted me to be. And then happily, though, at only the very young age of 30, which was now nine years ago, I really got serious about that commitment to myself and taking it further and finding my way back. So real knowledge of self and looking at our patterns of behavior and why we've chosen the things that we've chosen, if they're the wrong things. And certainly in my case, I chose a lot of wrong things for myself. It's painful and it's hard. And that means that when people start to scratch the surface, it's very common to run away. When I first started scratching the surface, I ran away too. So I totally get it. But happily, I found a way to find my way back and find the bravery to face whatever it was I needed to face. Once you have that self-knowledge and have started to develop love for yourself and make decisions from a loving place for you, that connection will mean that you will be able to then continue to make great choices for yourself. Until you've established that connection, you're kind of rudderless and you're kind of getting drift, you're getting swept along by the tide. You know, we often, we live outside of ourselves, so we we rely on the rest of the world to satiate us and make us happy. We have to find that within ourselves. And I know this sounds cliche and I get it. You know, I was a hater at one time too, I get it. But, you know, connection really is everything. And I've only been able to establish that within myself by a multitude of different methods of getting there. Most of all has been learning to meditate, learning to be peaceful with myself, establishing that connection truly and deeply, realizing that I'm actually fabulous on the inside, just like we all are, and that I'm great to spend time with. But instead, for some reason, our blueprint as children that we learn is distract, 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 run away, run away, run away. (laughs) Whether we're watching television, whether we're reading a book, whether we're eating something that takes us outside of, like most of our societal life is distracting us from our true selves. And I find that to be a great shame. But (laughs) I am delighted that I was able to find my connection to myself. And therefore, as Every opportunity I have to help others, whether it's, uh, you know, reestablish or facilitate or just inspire in a tiny way to take those part steps towards themselves, yeah. then for me, that is everything. And that that's really all I need. I think it's, well, it's, it's great mentorship. And I think it's going to really resonate with a lot of people that are listening to this. I, I love the way you say, always be yourself. And, and I also read somewhere that you've said, I am abundantly and unapologetically me, <laughs> which is, is fantastic. And I think so many of us can can learn from that. Are you able to explain briefly what the context is behind that quote and what led you to making this change that you, you made 
Yeah, you know what? It wasn't any one thing. So, I mean, so the quote is is really just, you know, the wholehearted the wholehearted embrace of yourself, right? And it's being brave enough to be exactly who you are. Now, I've found that space by being inspired by hundreds of different people in different ways. And most of the time, they had no idea that they were inspiring me. And they walked away from that conversation feeling like it was nothing, but they would have said one thing that was maybe the thing that made me do create some kind of significant change. And that's incredible. And so I started to pay attention to those people, probably, like I said, in about 2008. Yeah. But it was another two years before I made the big significant change changes within my life. And those those changes are now continuous. I live in a, a state of continuous audit where I'm constantly looking at, is this the right thing for me? Is this supporting my best self? Am I making this choice in the right energy? Or am I making it from a place of emptiness? And if I'm empty, then why am I not whole? And what am I looking to fill me? And, and, and you know, it's a continuous thing. But when I wasn't me, that was of my own design too, right? So it was all my own construct. I created a prison for myself, by myself. Nobody was responsible for that apart from me. So it was only... Again, this is going to sound a bit, but but it was really only me that could set me free, right? And and it was me that had to find the power and the ability to be able to do that. And so that though has been supported by happily finding that I landed in this magical industry of technology where I was able to bring my whole self to work and my rather quirky left field personality, whilst it maybe isn't always everyone's cup of tea, you know, it was celebrated by so many and I was able to realize that my own voice wasn't really that terrible. And yes, I am a little bit left field, but actually for a lot of organizations, they want to embrace that and they they are all about what I bring. And there are plenty that aren't, but, you know, for on Fido, who reached out to me and ha- extended their arm to me, then of course they were saying, yes, we, we're saying yes to you exactly mm-hmm. as you are. Brilliant. And I think there's, there's probably lots of people listening that possibly feel slightly frustrated versions of themselves. It's just kind of, it's in there somewhere. And, and often it's as much about the people that you work with and the environment and the culture to yeah. enable that true self to come out. But I know we talked a bit off air. Uh, you do other things. You mentioned meditation. Yes. Um, I know that you you don't drink and you mentioned that you have a plant-based diet, which I do. is, is uh, something I've been thinking about. Um, <laughs> I'm really interested in in the fact that you do all these other things and you're also a qualified yoga teacher or instructor. I am, yeah. So uh, how did this come about? Why is that important to you alongside your executive role in a fintech? Yeah, so I'm an accidental yoga teacher, honestly. One of the beautiful things that I discovered in the past few years of sort of self-discovery was a love of movement, which was something I'd forgotten. You know, I've always loved dancing. I've always loved that or certainly did as a child when I was free. But then when I set myself free again, I allowed that to unfurl and movement became part of that. I never intended to actually teach yoga. It was, I had a phenomenal teacher who was like, dude, you're a natural. You know, you really should be up here teaching with me. Hey, support me with this. Hey, do that. So when I studied it, I actually did it more just to learn more about the thing that I was enjoying doing. And then I, 
I never intended to teach, but that same person, as soon as I qualified, was like, I need you to cover my class or else. And I was like, I can't cover your class. She was like, you're absolutely going to do it. So she actually did kind of boot me in the back to do it. And then, of course, I, I love it. But what I would say, the most important thing of all is the learning that I have gained from it. Because what I was suffering from there was my old foe, imposter syndrome, right? I didn't feel like I, what on earth, who on earth did I think I was standing up there sharing something that how could I possibly know enough about because I was new to it and, you know, who was I to, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever the ridiculous conversations that we have with ourselves. So I learned so much by exposing myself in that way. And it made me grow professionally. Well, obviously that is a profession too, but in terms of my day job at the same time, because, you know, I'd been doing the thing in the day job for a long time. Therefore, it's easy to sound credible and feel like, you know, you're giving a presentation, you know your material, you're good. Teaching yoga, it made me become more humble about that again. I mean, I was fairly humble, but, but you know, it was kind yeah. of like, it was, it was actually a really important journey to go on. But I think the most important thing about movement in general is to, to, to find the kind of movement that supports your body the best, right? I'm not about beasting yourself or creating harm in your body. I'm about, you know, finding the thing that you love to do that supports your health and what your body needs to do the most. And anything that brings you closer to that connection, those moments. And for me, I've always been a fairly driven person. I've accidentally overachieved my entire life, but in a quite negative way, right? <laughs> so these bad choices in my 20s, I was an overachiever at them. Let's just be clear, okay, yeah. right? <laughs> but that can e easily lead to a an obsession, right? But where I came into yoga was quite a hard practice, you know, like the real kind of hardcore, let's go. But through that, I was able to slow down and find my breath. And then I discovered that really the key all along is slowing down and finding your breath and walking in line with your soul. But however we get there, you know, we all have our own dance to do to get there. Love it, Ruth. It's, 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 uh, I'm hoping that off the back of this, lots of us will take up yoga. I've, all, <laughs> I've, I've done one, one session. I'm so, so inflexible and I know I must do it again. But um, it's great to hear, hear your story on that. And it might be that yoga's not your thing. Yeah. It might be that there are other things that, that actually support you. I'm certainly not somebody who is, you know, I'm not dogmatic about the things that I do in that way. You know, like, yes, I eat plants, but I think so providing you're eating wholesome, healthy, natural things, you're good, yeah. right? Yeah. But it's for everybody to determine the energy of what they consume and what they do within their own body yeah, and work out. So you're like, whatever people want to do, I'm good. Yeah. But it's 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 it has to be down to the individual. And I think unfortunately we're in a bit of a time and place where people can be quite judgy yeah. and quickly forget that they didn't always know everything that they know today. That's a Malcolm X quote, I can't take credit. But, you know, like we didn't all know what we know right now. And we all need to be humbled by that and remember exactly that about ourselves. Very wise words from you and Malcolm X. <laughs> Thank you, Malcolm. <laughs> um, I know all of the people listening will be inspired by your story. This is called The 40 Minute Mentor. 
Do you have a mentor? And if so, how have they helped your career? Oh my goodness. I have so many mentors, it's not even funny, unofficial and otherwise. I think a big mistake that people make, particularly when they're getting into personal relationships, is thinking that one human being will provide everything that, that, that you need to thrive as a human and to grow as a human. Completely false. You need to literally earmark the people in your world, have the people in your world that you can give a role to that support your growth and development in some way. I do also have official mentors. The person that got me the job at Shazam actually became a mentor. We're like less, quite slightly less frequent now. But I have a number of peers where we kind of co-mentor one another. Okay, um, and then I have more official relationships. And then I, I also mentor other people, which is really important. And, and, you know, that's an incredibly important thing to me. If I can, I try to make time for people as much as I can. Because the beautiful thing about the sort of mentoring relationship is that it's always a two-way street. It doesn't matter which chair you're sitting in. I'm a big fan of reverse mentoring mm. and I learned so much from my team here all of the time, actually. And so I'm very open about presenting them with my challenges and providing them the most authentic leadership that I can by being honest and real and taking their wisdom and, you know, learning from their experiences just as much as they're able to learn from mine. That's a really, really good point. Thanks, Ruth. We are sadly almost at the end. There's a few last couple of questions these are relatively quick ones. So uh -huh. experience or attitude, what is more important for you and why? Attitude all day, every day, because you can learn anything. What you can't learn is attitude. And in fact, you can actually, no, that's not true. You can learn to have a better attitude. You actually can. Some people should. And some people <laughs> arguably should. Hopefully they will. But it's important to always remember that, you know, when it comes to doing whatever you want to do, we are just creatures on a planet doing a dance, making some kind of sense of this place and hopefully having fun. So make sure that that's what you're doing and you can literally do anything. But yeah, attitude every day. Okay. And another recruitment related question. What's your favorite interview question to ask and why? Now, happily, James did give me the chance to prep this. So I'm not <laughs> going to I'm not going to pretend it was just at the front of my mind. But my favorite one would be, who are you on your best day? And who are you on your worst day? Oh, I like that. Might have to use that. If that's right. <laughs> of course. But I like that element of yeah. I like to understand if people are capable of self-reflection and if they can see that there's a difference yeah, definitely. in those two places, because I definitely can. Yeah, and that can really open up some really interesting discussion, can't it? Definitely. Okay, I really like that one. Brilliant. Ruth, we're very near the end. The last question to leave you with is, if we meet up in 12 months' time, what do you personally hope to have achieved? And and I guess for Onfido as well, what would you like to have achieved with the business? So I probably can't say exactly from a business standpoint what I would like to have achieved. Personally... It's always about doing everything that I can to take as many steps forward as I can towards total authenticity. That's really important. And being able to live as often as I can from a place of loving energy, that's really important. So I guess actually if I was to answer it from an Onfido standpoint, it's, it's creating the space for that within an organization and for the people that, were, that are within the organization and no, that's not smart 
It's not a smart goal, I know, <laughs> um, but hopefully it's smart in the traditional sense. Indeed, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Ruth. It has been a joy having you as our 40-minute mentor. Total pleasure. Thanks so much. Appreciate Thank you, James. It. I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the 40-minute mentor brought to you by JBM. So if you'd like to tell us what you thought of the podcast or find out how we can help you with your next career move, please do get in touch at info at jbmc.co.uk. We'd love to hear from you.